1 Corinthians 11. I'm going to read verses 18, excuse me, verses 17 to 25, even though I'll preach 17 to 34. But uh, we'll read verses 17 to 25, and I want you to take some notations this evening. There's some recurring words and thoughts you'll see tonight from this passage of Scripture. Now in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not, that you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there be divisions among you, and I partly believe it. For there must be also heresies among you, that they which are approved might be made manifest among you. What he's saying there, those approved, just so you know this, he's talking about the ringleaders of these heresies. Verse 20, when you come together, therefore into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. For in eating, everyone taketh before others his own supper, and one is hungry, and another is drunken. What? Have you not houses to eat and to drink in? Or despise ye the church of God and shame them that have not? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? And this is the second time he said this. I praise you not. For I received of the Lord that which also I delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. This do in remembrance of me. And after the same manner also, he took the cup. And when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, this do ye as often you drink it, in remembrance of me. In verse 22, a series of questions that Paul asks. <clears throat> questions convict. Question, questions convict. Statements accuse. And we're looking at <clears throat> a real serious problem at the church at Corinth. He asks a question. Despise ye the church of God. Did you notice he didn't say the church at Corinth? The church of God. And that's kind of a title of our text tonight, our, our message. Are you despising the church of God? Father, bless our service tonight. Edify us in the word of your grace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I mentioned last week when we started 1 Corinthians 11... Chapters 11 to 14 address the matter of order in the church. Paul said in chapter 11, verse 34, And the rest will I set in order when I come. He said in chapter 14, verse 40, Let all things be done decently and in order. Titus 1.5, Set in order the things that are wanting. Now, if it hasn't dawned on us, God wants things to be orderly in his church. God wants us to think through 
What's the best benefit for the church? We never should look at the church in terms of how it benefits us or from our very minimal, narrow islands, you know, how we would do it. We have to look on the big picture framework, what is in the best interest of the church, not just for today, but looking several years down the line. Paul told Titus, set in order the things that are wanting. Now, notice if you would, Paul is speaking to a local church. Notice in verse beginning, verse 17, and several times he uses this phrase, when ye come together in the church. He's not talking in, a church, in, a, in a, what we call in a broad stroke about the, all the churches. He's speaking about this specific church. When you come together as a church. He says, when you come together as a church which is at Corinth. Now, I want to take a moment before I get the message to talk about the local church. Because the local church, he's speaking to a local church. A local church is a visible assembly. Now, that's an important phrase. A visible assembly of saved, baptized individuals. Now, here's some thoughts I want to give you. Dwight L. Moody said this. Church attendance is as vital to a disciple as a transfusion of rich, healthy blood to a sick man. You take the blood out of your life, and you're dead. The Bible says the life of the flesh is in the blood. I like the analogy Moody used. He said, church attendance is as vital to a disciple as a transfusion of rich, healthy blood to a sick man. Listen to what Spurgeon said. Alas, much has been done of late to promote the production of dwarfish Christians. Poor, sickly believers turn the church into a hospital rather than an army. I thought that's a great thought. We must remind ourselves we are called to be soldiers of grace. We're not to be patients in a hospital bed, even though we'll have some. It says, oh, to have a church built up with the deep godliness of people who know the Lord as their very hearts, in their very hearts, and will seek to follow the Lamb wherever he goes. Now, let me say a statement tonight. We are local church, and we're not universal church. I said we're local church and not universal church. When you're watching live stream, which we thank God is an excellent tool, and I'm looking to broaden our live stream audience as soon as we, uh, our church is able, our, our county moves from the purple tier into red tier, and the county approves, uh, get, get moves it to the, 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 their approval of indoor in-person services, we're going to do a major, major campaign to get as many people to come to church, but I'm going to try to get as many people as I can to also get into get to watch us by live stream because we're building an audience through that that we're going to try to reach people. And I'm going to tell you right now, we're getting people that are watching by live stream. They're getting saved, and some that are coming to our church when we have our services there, and that's a blessing. But I want you to understand something. A local church and a universal church are not the same. A local church is a visible assembly. Now, universal church speaks of an invisible assembly of all believers at any time, anywhere, and for any reason. Now, some some of you have gotten very used to and very content with live stream. Some of you have to depend on live stream because you're health vulnerable. I understand that. And uh, because of COVID-19 and things like that and because of your age and underlying health condition. But we must remember that, that live stream is not the church. The church is the visible assembly of God's people. You might say, well, I see all these names of people popping up on, on Facebook there and so forth like that. Hey, thank God for that. We have, to, we have to rely on that as a means for getting people together. But I remind you, church in the, in the purest context of the word is, is a visible assembly of God's people. Now, universal church gets it, gets it, it, the word comes from the word Catholic. We believe, now we understand something, we believe in the family of God and the local church. As we assemble, if we, back in the early days of COVID-19, when we could only do live stream, you know, there was a broad audience of people that watch us. Um, 
We have probably another 50 to 60 people at minimum per week that watch us, maybe more, that are from other places. And that's the family of God. All of God's people are the family of God. But you can only belong to one local church. You're not members of many churches. You're not part of one universal church. You're only a member of one local visible body, and that's the local church. Now, now when we look at that, we, we reject, I'd say as a church, we reject the concept and idea of a universal church. Now, when we get somebody that comes from another church, and they, they want to apply, they say, well, can I qualify for transfer membership? We ask for their statement of faith, even if they're from another Baptist church like ours. We scour that very carefully. We scrutinize that there, or their statements there, because if that, if that statement of faith says anything about a universal church, I, can't ac- I cannot accept that person's uh, transfer membership. And the reason being, if I accept their transfer membership, I'm saying that I agree with the fact that they come from a church that is universal nature, and we don't agree with that. If someone comes from a charismatic church, and they, and they, got this, and they get straightened out on this matter of tongues and, and healing and all that kind of stuff, realize those are temporary gifts and they don't exist, but they want to join our church, I'll tell you right now, if they came from a charismatic church, I couldn't accept their membership for I transfer membership, because in doing so, I would be saying, well, their doctrine is the same as ours. I'm going to tell you right now, their doctrine is not the same as ours. A universal church is not the same doctrine as a local church. Universal church is not biblical. Universal church is wrong doctrine there. The universal church is unbiblical, and scriptural. And so we have to understand, we, we are not, we are not a member of a universal church. Now, if you're not, you're not part of this church, you're watching somewhere like that, that, that's fine. We want you to watch. I want you to be part of that. But I want you to understand our goal is that you would become a member of this local church here. Now, if the, now let me give you a thought here. If the concept of a universal church is biblical, then that's basically saying you're a member of every church that falls under that idea of a universal church. How do you differentiate churches then? All churches are the same under universal church umbrella. There's no doctrinal distinction. Now I'm going to tell you, Baptist is Bible, Bible is Baptist. We have to understand there, is a, there are doctrinal distinctions. So if you're part of a universal church, there's no doctrinal distinction. Listen, that means you can, you can attend church invisibly. It's an invisible church. You have a universal church pastor. Who's the pastor of the universal church? If you're a universal, if you're a universal church, your theology, you're okay with going to this Bible study one week and this church service this week and this place one week. Listen, but when you're in the hospital, who's going to visit you? When you're dead, when you die, who's going to do your service? I'm saying to you today, we are not part of an invisible church. We're a visible local church assembly. Listen, the word ecclesia by its very name means a local visible assembly. Ecclesia refers to the church. Jesus chose that word. Of the 117 times the word church is found in the New Testament, 113 of those times is the word ecclesia. So Paul is addressing a local church assembly, the church at Corinth. He's dealing with a local church issue here in chapter 11. Two issues in our, in our passage tonight. And as we look at the order in the church, verses 1 to 16 is summing up what I said last week. Paul is addressing the issue of submission to the local church. The submission of the members to the local church, to the Lord and to the church. As we look at chapter 11, starting with verse 17, would you notice this please? Paul starts off in verse 17 with a very strong and a very stern statement. He says, now, in this that I declare to you, I praise you not. Now, earlier in the chapter, in verse 2, he says, I praise you that you remember me in all things, 
and keep the ordinances as I deliver them to you. But he gets to verse 17, and he said, I can't praise you. I praise you not. He says, because you're not coming together, you're not assembling for the better, but for the worse. He said their motives for assembling were not right with God. He said their practices when they assembled were not right with God. And so he asked the question, going down to verse 22, despise ye the church of God? And as we look at this section of Scripture, Paul's addressing a very serious problem. We all have to search our hearts about this. We're all guilty about this. He's addressing the problems of selfishness when we assemble and self-righteousness when we assemble for corporate meals or for just assembling together and the taking of the Lord's Supper. Now, if you know your Bible, you know that 1 Corinthians 11, the last this passage of Scripture, we, have, we typically refer to that when we talk about the Lord's table. Now, I did a more extensive message than I'm going to do tonight about the Lord's table. I did that back in, I think, 2017. And you might want to look back in our podcast, uh, our Sermon Archive podcast for that. You need to hear that just so you can be familiar with that. And if you're going through discipleship, you need to look at that because it's, a, it's, it's, act, it's actually much stronger in terms of the doctrinal content than what we teach through discipleship. But tonight I'm going to cover a broad, with a broad stroke, I'm going to cover a lot of things, but I'm going to get pretty deep on certain areas there tonight. And so we're looking at order in the church. We're looking at Paul... Question to the Corinthian believers, despise ye the church of God. Now I want you to see five things tonight very quickly because we don't have a lot of time. Number one, I want you to see the doctrine. The first thing I want to do is I want to go back to the ordinances. Paul praised the church in verse 2 for keeping the ordinances. Now an ordinance is a command, an edict, or precept, or rule. Now, when Paul talked about the ordinances, he was talking about a number of commands and and precepts that the church was given. He's enumerated some of them in this, pat, in, in this book. For our purposes, for our purposes, local churches recognize two ordinances that our Lord left behind. Now you consider everything we teach the Bible is an ordinance. But the two ordinances are Scriptural baptism, which is baptism by immersion in a Baptist church. May I say that? Scriptural immersion, baptism of a saved individual, and the Lord's table or the Lord's supper, which goes by the Lord's table, Lord's supper, communion. All three are fine. I might refer to it mainly today as the Lord's supper. The doctrine I want to take a moment to talk about is the Lord's supper. Is a doctrine emphasized in verses 23 to verses 34. Let me give you some thoughts you want to write down there. Number one, the Lord's Supper is a doctrine. The Lord's Supper is Christ's enactment. The Lord Jesus Christ enacted the Lord's Supper. I listed Matthew 26 here, um, Matthew 26, verses 26 to 32, which is, which is reiterated here by Paul in verses 23 to 25. It was enacted by the Lord. Paul said this in verse 23, For I have received of the Lord that which also I delivered to you. So the Lord's, the enactment of Christ was given to the apostles, given to Paul. That's exactly what we practice. We don't do anything different about that. 
Okay? And we need to follow exactly as Christ, Christ passed it down to Paul. So Paul said in verse 23, he said, For I have received the Lord that which I also delivered to you. There will be a day coming. We're going, to, we're going to plant churches and start churches. And we have, we have one over in another, another foreign country. You know what our goal is there when they have the Lord's table? They're going to pass it on to that church exactly as we practice it in our church, as it was passed on to us from Paul and from others like that. Okay? So it's Christ's enactment. Secondly, it is a contemplative event. A contemplative event. Notice what Jesus said. He said in verse, Paul mentions verse 24 and 25. He says, this do ye as often as ye drink in remembrance of me. We do consider the Lord's death till he comes, Paul said in verse 26. We take the elements, as I'll speak about in a moment, the bread, the unleavened bread, and the unleavened, the unleavened juice, we do this in remembrance. The Lord's table was instituted after a last meal that Jesus had with the disciples to remind them that we are to never forget the suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ, the bread representing his body, the grape juice representing the blood that he shed on the cross. It is a contemplative event. I think one of the most precious services we have throughout the year are the different times of the year that we have the Lord's Supper, the Lord's Table. We had one earlier this year before COVID-19 broke out. Those are very, very wonderful times. We sing a hymn, several hymns. We just review about the shed blood of Christ, his death on the cross. We look at Isaiah 53, and uh, we look at Matthew 27, and Mark chapter 15, and we look at uh, you know, Luke chapter 23, and John chapters 19, and, and uh, you know, those things stir our hearts when we read those scriptures. It's a contemplative event. As I mentioned, sometime in October, we are planning to have a Lord's Supper, a Lord's Table. We're going to have a large drive-in service. I'm going to have some qualifiers. You're going to have to meet the qualifiers I'm going to talk about tonight to come to that service. And we're going to have a, we're going to have a time where we're just going to contemplate, just, just remember the Lord. And we're going to uh, disperse, dispense the, uh, the, Lord's, the, the elements of the Lord's Table through prepackaged uh, elements so that will be prepared. Pre be prepared for that. So it's a contemplative event. Notice thirdly, it consists of consecrated elements. Unleavened bread. There's no yeast added to it. Leaven is a symbol of sin. We read about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. That's why it's a flat bread. There's no leaven added to it. It's basically like a, it's a cracker. Leaven's a picture of sin. It represents, unleavened, unleavened bread represents the sinless life of our Lord Jesus Christ. He was sinless. That's why the Jews in their practice, they, had, they celebrated the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread for seven days. What did they do? They First of all, they went throughout their house. They cleaned up their house of any porridge of leaven. A little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. They were to clean out their whole house of leaven. They were to make sure there's no leaven. Left. Then they celebrated eating unleavened bread for seven days. Not only unleavened bread, but unleavened fruit of the vine. It was not wine. Now go back to a message I preached a couple years ago about wine. The same word is used in the Greek for, 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 for uh, alcoholic beverages and for grape juice. What they drank was, was grape juice. It was the fruit, the freshly squeezed fruit of the vine. It was not wine. If anybody tells you they drank wine, they're wrong. Jesus Christ did not drink wine. Jesus Christ would not do something that would give characterization that he had sinned his life. If you add leaven to grape juice, if you add leaven to it, it ferments it, it corrupts it, and so that, you know, sin is corruption. So there was no, there was no leaven in the grape juice. It was freshly squeezed grape juice that they drank. It's a, it is a, the, we have consecrated elements, all of that representing a picture of the suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ, that grape juice being symbolic of the shed blood of Christ. But notice this. 
It's Christ's enactment. It's a contemplative event. They're consecrated elements, but I want you to listen very carefully. It's for closed eligibility. Paul wrote this to a local church, and that local church was the church at Corinth. Paul is making it very clear as he establishes the doctrine of the Lord's table that the Lord's table is not open, is not an open Lord's table. An open Lord's table is more prominent among those who are who lean towards a universal church theology. We've had people who visit our church and we've had the Lord's table where they're from other churches. I've had to kindly ask them not to just publicly say, please don't participate in this. This is only for the members of our church. They come from a, a open, open, an open Lord's table. And, and I've had people who've come who've been very offended that we would not invite them or allow them to take. Some have taken it and they probably got sick from it but because they disobeyed the Lord. But it's, a clo- it's for a closed eligibility. Why? Okay, well, let me tell you why. Who is it close to? Well, number one, unsaved individuals cannot participate of the Lord's table. Members of another church are not supposed to participate in the Lord's table. Why? Because you're a member of that church. The church you're a member of, you're to partake of the Lord's table in that church. Uh, Saved but unbaptized individuals cannot participate in the Lord's table. Church members who were church disciplined could not participate in the Lord's table. They were church disciplined. They were churched out. They were no longer had. They no longer had a. Their name was not on the church roster. They can't take of it. Church members with unconfessed sin are not supposed to take the Lord's table. So it's a closed eligibility. There's a continuing emphasis. Paul said this, as often as you do this, he was repeating what the Lord Jesus Christ said. So we consider the Lord's table. The Lord's table is a very, very precious moment reminding us of the, the, of the, of the expensiveness and the preciousness of the shed blood and the death of Jesus Christ for us. In October of 1971, the Shah of Iran invited 60 kings, queens, and heads of state to celebrate 2,500 years of the Persian Empire. I mean, that was a very, very costly banquet. They spent on this celebration $100 million. But I'm going to tell you, the Lord's table is more expensive than that. The Lord's table represents the life, the death, and the shed blood of Jesus Christ, which covered and paid for the sins of all of the world. And we can rejoice tonight that the Lord gives us the opportunity through the doctrine of the Lord's table to continue to celebrate and rejoice over it as saved, baptized individuals of the local church. So we see the doctrine. Number two, this is getting to the issue. Number two, I want you to consider with me the denunciation. The denunciation. Paul said in verse 17, Now in this that I declare unto you, I praise you not, that you come together not for the better, for the worse. Now, Paul denounces, I mean, he reprimands, I mean, he chastises the church at Corinth in two areas. Two areas. Area number one is what they call, they, the general term, the Lord's Supper, or as they would have called it during those days, the, the Christian love feast or the agape love feast. Now, what is that? The Christian love feast or agape love feast are probably the forerunner to what we would call the American potluck. Amen? And the love feasts were basically when, before an evening service, the believers came together for an evening meal. Everyone was to bring a hearty entree dish. 
they were to share that dish among all the brethren. The purpose behind, this is why it was called love feast or agape feast. The purpose behind that was because when Jesus Christ died for our sins and rose again from the dead, and he established the local New Testament church, with salvation, he broke down the middle wall partition between Jews and Gentiles, males and females, bond and slave. He broke down the middle wall partition because you have to remember, there were a lot of, there were a lot of barriers that people dealt with in those days. There was true racism that existed in those days. Romans and Jews, all of those kind of things. And because of that, when people got saved, the church became, if you would, an admixture of everybody in society. Women got to participate. Men got to participate. Slaves got to participate. Rich, rich aristocratic people participated. I mean, everybody from all walks and backgrounds got, all, got to participate in the church service, and they were one in Jesus Christ. And Paul wrote in Galatians 3.28, no Jew, nor Greek, nor bond, nor free, no male or female, we are all one in Jesus Christ. That's a wonderful thing about the church of Jesus Christ, that it's one in Jesus Christ. But when these got me love feasts, the intent and purpose was that everyone brought a meal to participate. They laid it down on the table. Everyone would share. And it was a, it was a wonderful, wonderful time where they would celebrate together the things of the Lord. Here's the problem. Paul said, you come not together for the better, before the worst, look at verse 21. He said, For in eating, everyone taketh before others his own supper. The very well-to-do in the church brought very lavish, wholesome, nutritious meals. The church was made up of a lot of poor people. When I say poor, I mean poor. People who barely got by. Those poor people in the church coming to, the, to that Lord's Supper, those agape love feasts, they look forward to coming to those feasts, especially if they were a new believer, because that would be a time they would get something to eat, a little bit more wholesome and nutritious than they had all week long. Those well-to-do believers basically did two things, actually three things. Number one, they hoarded the food for themselves. Look again at verse 21. He said this. He said, um, for in eating, everyone taketh before others. In other words, these well-to-do believers were somewhat, they had not changed in their heart towards those poor people because they felt like, well, you know, we don't mix together socially. And they basically precluded those poor Oh, not, not as well-to-do believers from participating in the meals. So they basically, you brought a meal, and I'll just use an example. Let's say they brought a, um, let's say someone brought a pork roast, amen? You know, because now you're, as a Jew, you can eat pork. Praise the Lord for that, amen? They brought a pork roast. And a poor member probably bought a very simple vegetable dish like barley soup. And the rich, the rich well-to-do would say, well, you know what? They would pull out their meal and pull it aside. They'd get all the rich friends together and say, hey, I brought this to share together. And they would make sure they sat around the same table, so in the same section, so nobody else could get the food. Well, these poor believers, 
By the time it was all done, they get notice it says they take other people the food. In other words, the other thing they were doing is they were uh, some of these well-to-do or these people that had preferences about things. They basically they uh, they rushed to get to the food before other people can get to it, and they took larger portions for themselves. So when you had the Lord's table, a love feast basically means hey, we're going to share. There was no sharing. There was a lot of selfishness that went on at these love feasts. These poor. Not so well-to-do believers. They came hungry. They left hungry. They left hurt. And they left disappointed. They knew, they knew they had been disrespected. They knew those same well-to-do people that they saw in the marketplace who turned their head against them and wouldn't say hi to them. They knew those same people who also got saved, but not changing their heart towards those poor people, purposely withholding the blessings for them. So you got a problem here. He said in verse 21, For everyone taketh before others his own supper, and one is hungry. Then here's the third thing they did. Some of those people came and they actually brought, believe this or not, they brought alcoholic beverages and they got drunk. They got blasted at, the, at these suppers. They brought their alcoholic beverages, they drank away, and before the Lord's table would be dispensed, we would call the Lord's table, these people were already blasted and drunk. And I'll tell you, this didn't happen in one service, in two services. This went on for a long period of time because Paul had been away from the church at Corinth, and he heard, he heard these things, and he said, I, I hear these things, and I partly believe. In other words, he says, I, he, in other words, he's saying, I find this very hard to believe. They're not sharing. They're hoarding food. They're taking advantage of this situation, and basically there's a, there's a disparity in the food allocation, and then people are getting drunk on top of that. I mean, there's, there's a host of problems there at, this, at these love feasts. So Paul went to say this later on. Notice this. He said later on, I think it's verse 22, what? There's this famous what? What? It's like disbelief. You really did this? You really stooped down that low in your Christianity that you did something like that? He says, have you not houses to eat and to drink in? In other words, he's telling the, the rich believers, the well-to-do, I mean, at a minimum, you've got more than enough. You could have eaten before you came. You could, have, you, could have just, you could have just shared your food, and you brought that food to share with everybody in the church, and instead, you know what you did there? You ate your dinner there and let other people watch and left them hungry. He says, don't you have houses you could, you could have eaten before you came or you could eat after, afterwards and take yourself? He says, you have houses to eat in. What are you doing? You, you, you have more than enough. And then he said this. He said, what have you not houses to eat and drink in? And then he's talking about the fact, why are you coming to church with alcohol and getting blasted there? And then he says, or despise ye the church of God and shame them that have not? He says, do you realize what you've done? You made the church look like the church is endorsing this. And behind, Let me just give you a thought here. You know, our church is, our church, in, before all of this COVID stuff, one of, the, one of the hallmarks of our church is we're an eating church. Praise God for that. Amen. We've had some good things there. I mean, we've, we've, uh, I mean, we've had some good things. We have banquets, things like that. But I'm going to tell you some problems. And people come to church expecting with an entitlement mentality the church is supposed to feed you. 
hoarding up leftovers and stuff as if that, you know, well, thank God, you know what, we're going to, the, the attitude is, well, I'm going to come to church because we're going to take good care of you on that. And we do take care of them. We're going we're gonna to have more than enough food and things like that. I'm saying, Paul is saying here, we better, we better check our attitude before we come to these meals there because our attitude may not even be right. Or if you're somebody who has the capability of sharing and you don't share, he says that's wrong. Or you just bring enough and not enough to go by with and people go away hungry. That's a wrong attitude, he says there. And Paul said this, what shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I praise you not. So Paul says, these selfish and wicked practices, you're despising the church of God. But there's a second problem. There's these love feasts. And it's almost like Paul wanted to say, you know, let's do away with these potlucks. (laughs) Let's do away with these meals. Second problem had to do with the Lord's Supper. The church took the Lord's Supper after the love feast. Jesus had a meal with his disciples. Then he dispensed the Lord's Supper. There were selfish practices with the love feast, but there was sinful negligence in taking the Lord's Supper. Paul said this, would you notice? Verse 27. Wherefore, whosoever shall eat this bread and drink this cup of the Lord, would you circle the word unworthily, shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. Unworthily means they came with a, in a profane manner. They were sacrilegious. It's almost, it's very closely Related to what Paul says in Hebrews, I think Hebrews 10, 20, uh, Hebrews 10, somewhere in Hebrews there, I'm trying to think what verse it is there, in chapter 10, verse 23 or 24, uh, maybe one of those verses there, maybe verse 27. And he talks about uh, trampling underfoot the Son of God. They were coming with a profane attitude. So you want to imagine one extreme, you've got these selfish These selfish, and I'll say more about what they did later, some of their other sins, these selfish, well-to-do believers who had a bias in their heart, who were hoarding the food that they brought and were displaying a a spirit of self-righteousness, not having any conscience about what they were doing and then taking the Lord's Supper. And then you had the poorer members who had been jilted and hurt, who had a bad attitude now, and were upset, and they were feeling despised, and they didn't have a good attitude. I mean, the church was in a mess. They were taking the Lord's, uh, the cup and the bread in an unworthy manner. And Paul said in verse 27, if you take it unworthily, you are guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, you're trampling underfoot the Son of God. Foremost with this, Paul talked about in verse 28, every man examining himself, I'll say more about that in a minute, as he takes the bread and the cup. And he talked about in verse 29, again about them taking it unworthily. And basically Paul's saying this, there was deep, deep sin in the hearts of these believers. They'd gotten so used to taking the Lord's table, they were used to their sins and taking it, and they were just, basically, it was, it was not a good thing. They were coming to the table with unconfessed sins. 
Now I'll say more about this in a minute, but right in the margin of your notes in your Bible, James chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Because now the church was in a place, he's going to get to in my third point, where foremost of all the problems they were having and the sins they were having was the selfish, cliquish treatment and resentment the brethren were having towards each other. In James chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, Paul addresses the problem of he called respective persons. Now, we would call that in our, our terminology today partiality, preferential treatment, discrimination. Paul, James said in James chapter 2, if you show respect to persons, that's a sin. You show partiality. And Paul said that the flippant, irreverent attitude these believers took about the Lord's Supper made them guilty of the blood and body of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why he said in verse 20, when you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not the Lord's Supper. He says, you didn't come with the intent of assembling together, of sharing and, your, and confessing your sins and taking the Lord's Supper with a pure heart. He says, you didn't come together for that matter. And so he said, you despise the church of God. That's pretty strong. I mean, Paul was upset. He was par I mean, he was hot. He says, I praise you not. Despise you the church of God. So we see the doctrine. We see the denunciation quickly. Would you notice, thirdly, the divisions? Now, Paul alluded to this in chapter 1, verse 10. He spoke about divisions in the church. Notice verse 18. Paul brings this up again. In verse 17, he said, you'd come not together for the better, but for the worse. And he said in verse 18, for first of all, when you come together in the church, I hear that there be, there be divisions among you. Now, preachers can detect divisions pretty quickly. He said, first of all, there are divisions. Now, the word for divisions is the word schisms or sects, S-E-C-T-S, sects and cliques. He uses the word heresies. Did you notice that in verse 19? In verse 19, heresies is a word very synonymous with divisions and sects and schisms and heresies. A clique... And now it goes by the term social bubble here in, in, in California or in, in the world. A clique is a social group of people who stay together to the exclusion of other people. Now please understand something tonight. Everybody's got their, their social bubble of friends they like hanging around with. Their family, their friends. We understand that. that, that he's not talking about that. It's natural for people to have friends they, they hang around with, they'll be together with. But a clique is a group that stays concentrated together and basically you can't get in. If you're not part of that clique, you're not part of that group. You're not part of the group that's cool. May I say that? And he uses the word heresies to describe these divisions. Now, Galatians 5.20, you want to mark that in your notes. Galatians 5.20 classifies a heresy which is divisive as a work of the flesh. 
It's a work of the flesh. There were numerous heresies or sects within the church at Corinth. Let me tell you some. The well-to-do or rich, had their, they had their sect. The poor or not well-to-do had their sect. The Greeks had their sect. The Jews had their sect. The women, as I mentioned about last week, who felt a little bit more liberated because they were the, the, the inclusiveness of the church, there were women that had their own sect. Those who practiced certain spiritual gifts, as we get into chapter 14, they practiced, they had their own sect. There was the sect of the tongue speakers. There was a sect of the prophecies, those who practiced prophecy. There were those who had personality sects, the one of Paul and of Cephas and Apollos. I mean, I'm going to tell you tonight, the church at Corinth was a mess. And let me tell you something. Hey, listen to me tonight, church. So is every other church that practices that same kind of stuff. Clicks are sin. You need to break up your clique. Your little group that hangs out, nobody else can be a part of it, and you're all cool with that. You know, you try to get your little fun. And you say, well, how do you know about that? Because Paul even talks about the ringleaders about that. Look a bit further. Look at chapter 11, and he talks about the ringleaders in all of these things. He said in verse 19, for there must also be heresies among you. He said, there are not only divisions, there's heresies among you that they which are approved may be made manifest among you. You know what he's saying there? The word approved, those which may be approved, there are those who are the ringleaders behind all that, the instigators behind these sects, these heresies. And they basically were, are people that were basically promoted themselves and were creating a following and had these different groups of people following them in different capacities. And we see them, we see them in local churches today. Preferential leader relationships, gatherings with the ringleader who intentionally is developing his or her own following. And so you have these love feasts, which were intended to, to build camaraderie and fellowship among the believers, where believers could feel very comfortable in going up to each other. I mean, you'd have you can imagine these different these different spiritual bubbles or social bubbles within within the church that, that were just hanging out together. That's fine, everybody does that, but but not when you exclude other people, not when you that somebody else is not allowed in there. And so, and so you, you, you come around and, and they would just basically close the gap so you can't come in there. And they made it very clear to you, you're not welcome in their group or they withhold the food. They made it very clear to you, you are not welcome in their group. It happens when a church is multicultural in language and ethnic preferences. Creates a cliquish mindset. That's why I, don't, I really don't like the idea where some churches say, well, we have, we have and I'm just going to use it because this is what we do. Say, we have a Spanish church in China. We don't have multiple churches. We have only one church. We have only one church. We may have a Spanish ministry and a Chinese ministry, and one day maybe we'll have an Arabic ministry, whatever there and whatever it may be. But I'm going to tell you, we have one church. Now, some come from the background, well, that's just the way it is. I don't believe that. I don't believe that's why we were given Acts chapter 2. They spoke in other languages. Out of every nation, the Bible says. 
It happens when there's multicultural language and ethnic preference. It happens when the church consists of generational difference. Hey, listen, teenagers have their own little group here, and single adults have their own little group here, and ministry groups that kind of hang out together, they have their own little group here, and this group has their group here, and this group has their group there, and it comes about where they don't really even know who the other people in the church are. Hey, listen, the purpose behind the love feast were for people to get to know one another and to serve one another. They have it where there's differences of worship service, traditional worship, contemporary worship, but that's not even biblical. The cliques want their own services. That's what they wanted. They like, to, they like to come up and say, well, you know what, let's, you know, they do this comparison thing. Well, you know, the, the, the English church does this, so what about the non-English church? We do this. Hey, listen, we're one church. If, whether you have or not, praise God, if you have church, let's just have church and have a good time. As long as you have your Bible and Jesus is there, that's church. You don't have to play all this preferential stuff here. Well, listen, this adult group had, had their little breakfast out there. Can, why can't we have our breakfast? Listen, you know, when we, have to, when we have to do away with breakfasts and things like that because of those kind of, and by the way, you shouldn't be coming to church just because we have a breakfast. You need to come to church because we have Bible, not breakfast. Well, they don't speak my language. Well, you know what? If I was in a foreign country, since I'm primarily an English speaker, I'd have to learn the language, I guess, huh? Why is in America that we have a difference, of, a difference of ideas about this stuff? And let me tell you the problem when you have these, these issues here that Paul's talking about here. Listen to me. I'm trying to keep us from a church split because you know what he's talking about there? They had a church split within the church at Corinth. They had multiple church splits inside. That's what the word heresies basically means, that they had church splits there. They had schisms inside the body of Christ there. And you know what? They were split over the Lord's table. As long as I got my little click, they tell you the problem with it. Number one, when you have all these clicks, there's zero accountability. Zero accountability. Listen, ministries are established to win souls, make disciples, and split in half, and then do another, to start another class. We're winning souls and making disciples. We're not there for our cute little fellowship and to hang out. To, listen, when we get back to whatever is normal is, you're not going back to your old normal with nothing growing and nothing's happening. We're going to grow the church, and we're going to see people saved and disciples made inside those ministries. Well, give me another chance. You didn't do it before. You're not going to do it later. Zero accountability. Zero local church support. And it should be across the board. Every ministry understands we're all participating in faith promise missions. We're all participating in the tithing of the church. We're all participating in the building offerings. It shouldn't be that the preacher has to get out and cajole different ministries about this because we broke it down to generational usage or whatever. Listen, the whole church should be on board about what we're doing. That's a no-brainer about a church. Zero local church support. There's disparity in the offerings and participation in the mainstream life of the church. And let me tell you tonight, a split is a fractured and broken body. So there was the divisions. Notice number four. First of all, we looked at the doctrine. Secondly, we looked at the denunciation. Thirdly, we looked at the division. I want you to notice number four. Would you notice the discipline? Now, how do you think God looked at all that? I always ask you this question. I don't ask you how do you think the preacher looked at it. I ask you the question, how does God look at that? 
What does the Lord think about that thing? And as we read the rest of this chapter, God chastened the members of the church at Corinth who practiced these practices. You better listen to me. Some of you are sitting on the borderline of church discipline or God's discipline, one or the other there. Chastening is a spiritual discipline punishment for the purpose of correcting that which is sinfully wrong. Now, God doesn't chasten to punish us. He chastens us because he loves us. He chastens us because he wants to correct us. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. The word for chasten, the word for correction, is the same word that's used in Ephesians 6, 4, and talking about fathers and mothers and raising their children. The Bible says we're to raise them in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord. The word nurture is the same word for chastening. It means correction. No parent should, you should be punished, you should not be punishing your child for wrong. You correct your child so they don't make that mistake again. So what were they doing? Look at verse 29. The believers were eating and drinking damnation to themselves, not discerning the body of the Lord. That's sacrilegious. That's profanity. First of all, can you imagine people being drunk, taking the Lord's table? (laughs) Can you imagine someone showing partiality against the poor brother or against a woman of the church and his conscience not even bothering coming to the Lord's table after that? So what did, what did God say here? Well, notice what he said here. Look at verse 30. For this cause many are weak and sickly among you. Notice he said the word many. There are a lot of them that are suffering from physical ailments. Sick and weakly. The word pining is a good word to describe it. They were pining. Weak and sickly. Look at the second thing. He said in verse 30, and many sleep. He's not talking about sleeping in church. He's talking about those who the Lord took home. There was an early death in their life. Now, I don't know about you. That's pretty scary, guys. Church, that is very, very frightening. God visited his church. It's okay. You won't listen to the preacher. You're not listening to the word of God. You keep on doing these practices. Number one, many are sick and weakly. Number two, many are sleeping. I believe, I believe in verse 30, the many that are sleeping, they got to the point of no return. They became very callous to the call of God to repent. I believe they were committing the sin unto death that John speaks about in 1 John 5, 16. God chastened through declining health and through physical death. Look at verses 31 to 32. God was judging them. Notice what he says here. For this cause many many are weak and sickly among you, many sleep. For For if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. You know what's going on? They were coming to the Lord's table and they were not judging themselves. Now, there are many judgments the Bible speaks about. You know, we're going to judge angels. We read about this. Uh, there's going to be the judgment of the believer's works. That's the Bema Seat judgment of Christ. There's the great white throne judgment we just looked at a while ago. But one of the judgments we overlook preaching about and looking at is the judge, where you and I are supposed to judge ourselves. We're to, we're to do a very thorough introspection and scrutinization of our heart. And he said in verse 32, but when we are judged, 
we are chastened of the Lord, that we should not be condemned with the world. Some of you might say, well, preacher, I've, I, I'm not being chastened. I've not been chastened in a long time. I might suggest to you better read Hebrews chapter 12 because the Bible says if you've not, not been chastened, it could be you're not one of his. You might not be saved. So we see this denunciation of these two things that they were doing, the splits and divisions, all that. Paul saved it. He got to chapter 11. He said, many are weak and sickly and many sleep. We see the discipline. Finally, would you notice the last thing tonight? Would you notice the diagnosis? Paul pulls it all together in verses 28 to 34. Number one, every Christian, look at verse 28, every Christian is to do a self-examination. Beginning tonight, ask your questions. Last time you spent heartfelt time with the Lord confessing your sins. I mean, calling them out one by one. Pride. Lying. False witness. Idols. And we all have idols in our life. Covetousness. And covetousness is idolatry, the Bible says. The sin of prayerlessness. Not bearing forth fruit. Testing your life to the, the listing of the works of the flesh and the listing of the works of the Spirit. We must do a self-examination. Now, to help us, notice Psalms 139, verses 23 to 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. You know what David's saying there? Lord, let your Spirit work through me and show me, reveal to me my heart. Now, I'm going to tell you one of the reasons why a believer struggles with callousness and hardness of heart is because they haven't been under the scrutiny of the Holy Spirit. They haven't applied Psalms 139, verse 23, where they said, Search me, O God. Know my heart. And David went beyond that. If you'll notice this, verse 23, he said, God, try me. You know what he was saying to God? He said, Lord, I know there's some sins in my life. God, I want you even to put me in a trial so I can see what's wrong with my life. Search me, O God, and know my heart and try me. Know my thoughts and see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Now, why do we need to do self-examination? Well, we have to do it before the Lord's table. But let me tell you some reasons why. One, it's good for your heart. The heart is deceitfully wicked. Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. It's good for your heart. Create me, O oh God, a clean heart. Don't you want a right heart, amen? You want a clean heart before God? It's good for your heart. Number two, it's good for your holiness. Every Christian's aspiration should be to be a holy Christian. Third, it's good for your health. We keep from getting weak, sickly, or even dying. We need to do a diagnostic test of our spiritual condition. Every Christian should do a self-examination. Now let me pause on this and tell you this tonight. I'm going to make one announcement on a designated date, on an evening service, a drive-in service for the Lord's Supper. Leading to that, we're going to have a time, an announced time, or several announced times, for those who will be participating in the Lord's table to come for a time of confession of sin.
I don't know where a lot of you have been. Without seeing you face to face, I don't know where you've been at. I do not want you showing up for the Lord's table, and I haven't, you haven't been around church, and I don't know where you're at spiritually in your life. I want to make sure we've had a time of corporate confessing of sin before we go forward. Listen, I'm going to tell you, we can't. this church at Corinth was broken and split and hurting and bleeding out because they had not had a time of confession of sin. I don't want that for our church. I believe our church is in good condition, but I'm not taking anything for granted. The heart of man is sinful. We need to have a time of confession of sin, repentance of our sin, and get our hearts right and ready for the Lord's Supper there. Now Paul said again, verse 31, for if we would judge ourselves, we should not be judged. Okay, second, look at verse 33. Wherefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, tarry one for another. Second, we must have courtesy and wait upon each other as Christians. Paul earlier said this in chapter 10, verse 17. For we being many are one bread and one body, for we are all partakers of that one bread. When we take the Lord's Supper in church, Paul said in chapter 10, verse 17, we are one bread and one body. We're, we're brought together in a unique fellowship with our Lord Jesus Christ. That is the sweetest time of fellowship a church has together and in the Lord is when we take the Lord's table. So when we partake of the Lord's table, it's for the mutual benefit and service of the local body of Christ. We must have courtesy and wait upon. That's what he said there. Tarry one for another. Thirdly, look what he said in verse 34. If any man hunger, let him eat at home. He's dealing with the love feast issue. He's saying don't come to church with an entitlement mindset. Don't come to church to take. By the way, it's a good idea to come to church to give. Amen? With church with a giving attitude. He said, don't expect the church to feed you. That you come not together to condemnation, the rest will I send in order when I come. So Paul sums this all up, verse 22. He said, I praise you not. Despise you the church of God. Now let me say this tonight. Our church is a great church. It's a good church. It's a sweet church. Our assemblies are great. But I, every now and then I have to preach a message a little bit harder because I'm reminding myself, it's just like cleaning the church. There's some hard-to-get places. And it's too easy for us, all of us, to slip into bad habits. And I'll be honest with you, we must cure and deal with perhaps, you know, how you deal with people socially. You just, you know, I know we're in a rough world and we're in California. Things are tough. But I'm going to tell you, you don't treat God's people wrong. You treat God's people right. You treat one another right. Whatever hurts you, God, and crazy things that have gone on, put it behind you. Go move forward for Jesus Christ. Some are living in the past, so far in the past, you cannot overcome something. You've lived with that. Listen, you can't come to the Lord's table with that kind of stuff there. So tonight, confess our sins. Have repentance towards God. Instead of despising the church of God, let's build up the church of God. Let's lift it up. It's his body. It's his church. He loves it. He shed his blood for it. And then tonight, the Lord's sable is a picture and representation of Christ's death and shed blood for our sins. If you're not saved tonight, Jesus died for your sins. Jesus shed his blood so that your sins could be paid up in full. And he wants you to get saved tonight. He wants to forgive you your sins. He wants to take away those sins. 
and give you the gift of eternal life. You simply can call upon Jesus tonight. Tell the Lord you repent of your sins. Tell the Lord by faith you believe that Christ died for you and rose again. And say, Lord, by faith, I want to take you right now to be my Savior. You'll be saved. Just to, last week or the week before, we had two, la- two ladies who were assist- sisters watching our, our service. They've never been here before. They watched our service, the invitation of a relative. Both trusted Jesus Christ their Savior and told us about it. Listen, people get saved by watching live stream. Tonight, you can get saved too. You're only fooling yourself. You're not fooling God. If you're not really saved, get saved tonight. Get born again tonight. Make tonight the 16th day of September the day you're born again into God's family.